This episode, I'm joined by Glenn Cronin to discuss his book, Disenchanted Wanderer, The Apocalyptic Vision of Konstantin Leontiev, alongside discussions on Russian literature and Orthodox Christianity. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast, gain access to some exclusive content, and keep mythics going indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So... Glenn Cronin, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Well, pleased to be here. Thank you, James. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book uh, recently published called Disenchanted Wanderer, The Apocalyptic Vision of Konstantin Leontiev. Um, so this book, as I said to you, was sort of just someone said to me, as as happens every now and again now, someone said, look, this has been this has been published. It will really interest you. You should try and talk to the talk to the author. And what I found within was a figure, uh, Leontiev, who has been, as far as I can see, though you said there's been a few things written, but not for 50 years. Someone who's been forgotten, who was, in many ways, as I said on the blurb, and it said in without throughout the book, uh, a precursor to Nietzsche, uh, has this very fascinating relationship to uh, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, a very fascinating relationship with faith in general, and also lives um, an extremely intriguing life. So before we jump in with the book, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, yeah, how, how this how this all came about, because I, you know, as I understand, it's been quite a journey. Yes, well, in the in the late 80s, um, I was casting around for a subject on which to uh, do uh, my PhD uh, thesis and my tutor at that time, Donald Rayfield of the University of London, suggested that Leontiev was a was a neglected figure who could who could uh, who be worth um, looking into. So I, I completed the thesis um, by the end of the decade, uh, early in nineteen ninety. There didn't seem a lot of interest at that time in in in, in turning into into a book, at least. I couldn't find a publisher, and I had uh, my career to make, so I, I left it and I went and worked for the Department for Transport in London. I was there for 20 years. Um, when I retired, some of my friends badgered me really to, to dust off thesis and turn it into a book, which I did. Um, I found, to my surprise, that really there hadn't been that much done on Leontiev in the West in the intervening period. Um, and um, so, so it was quite timely, and I was very lucky. I, I, I found um, uh, interest in the, um, in the book in Cornell University in the States, and it's now been published under the imprint of the Northern Illinois University, which is associated with Cornell. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in, in Leontiev in Russia since Perestroika, a considerable amount, um, not so much in the West. So um, my book is really the first comprehensive study of Leontiev in about 50 years, although there have been a few um, quite interesting shorter articles published. Um, mm. So there we are. Mm, mm. Do you, I'm, I'm wondering, do you feel there was ever a connection between uh, your background in Leontiev and, and, and I assume Russian literature and your work at, in the, with the, the transport? None whatsoever. <laughs> no, uh, we we didn't have a lot to do with 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 Russia I'm, uh, in transport. Um, I well, I did do a stint in civil aviation, but again, I didn't come across the Russians very much. And they always had a rule in Russia anyway that foreign negotiations had to be conducted in English, um, so there was little chance to use the language. Um, so no, there was there was no real connection there, I'm afraid. Okay, okay. Well, before we jump in with the book, um, I have to ask you the hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, uh, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Uh, who do you pick? Well, I guess this was a bit of an icebreaker question, so <laughs> I, I ought to be topical. I would pick Boris Johnson, <laughs> Sue Gray, and Cressida Dick. I would like to get them in a room, possibly with thumb screws provided, <laughs> and see if we could get some light shed on what in earth is going on with the Partygate business. Um, whether we would or not, I don't know. Um, more heat than light, probably, but you never know. Um, 
So yeah, they'd be my three for the moment. So you're not you're not a fan of uh, the current government then? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. I I, I think Boris has uh, let us all down really with, with this. Um, but then. Um, at least we have the advantage that if he had resigned two or three weeks ago, we wouldn't have the benefit of his expert diplomatic skills now in our in our negotiations with Russia over the Ukraine. So I guess every cloud has a silver lining. Mm, mm. I mean, yeah, I'm wondering just with your with your background as well. Then, I mean, how do you feel about this whole situation? Just to stay on that topic of sort of contemporary things, I suppose there's a very subtle connection there. Um, but perhaps what do you think Leontiev would make of it as well? I think Leontiev would have a, um, a titter uh, watching it all. I mean, there is, there is I, I worked closely with ministers in Whitehall during my career there. Um, and I find the, the extraordinary mishandling of this issue quite uh, astonishing. Uh, to be honest, um, I do wonder what's going on there. Um, that he, he that the the whole number ten organisation could have been so blind to the true situation in the country um, during COVID as to do anything of what they've they've been accused of doing is 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 absolutely astonishing to me, and I think they deserve castigating for it. Because they've certainly let the the civil service down badly in, in, in what they've done, and then shone a very very poor light on on the administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm. Well, perhaps those sort of uh, contemporary quandaries will uh, come up again in our discussion. But as we move into uh, Discussion of Konstantin Leontiev, um, as you know, many people will simply not have heard of him, uh, which is unfortunate. Where where can we situate him uh, historically? Okay, I'll, I'll keep this as short as practical. Um, there's a, there's a main line of Russian thought, really, from the time of Peter the Great in the very early 18th century, um, a Europeanizing um, brand of thought. This went, this went through Catherine the Great um, until the early part of the 19th century um, when it provoked a reaction uh, among Russians who were afraid that too much European influence would tend to drive out uh, traditional Russian values and make Russia a kind of poor imitation of the West. And a group called the Slavophiles um, arose and who were determined, if possible, to drag Russian culture back from the brink of Europeanization and, and develop a truly Russian uh, culture, uh, opposed, not necessarily opposed, but uh, as different from, from, from Western Europe. Uh, Leontiev was right in the middle of this. I mean, he, his thinking is in many ways um, strongly influenced by European thought, but at the same time his sympathies lie with the, with the Slavophile tendency. Um, although in later life he fell out with the Slavophiles because he disagreed with their basic thesis, which, which was that the Slavic bloodline uh, should be the decisive factor in determining um, the future Russian culture, Leontiev did not agree with with with, with racial Slavism. He postulated um, something that was closer to a pan-Orthodox uh, culture, which he thought would have the dual effect of insulating Russia against excessive liberalism coming from Europe. And at the same time, hopefully, um, produce um, a renaissance in Russia in due course um, of an Eastern Orthodox, Slavic, Eurasian even um, mixture, which he thought would be the most culturally fruitful uh, way forward. So it seems to seems to me that 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 
line of Slavophile thinking is still still quite strong today um, in in Russia. Oh, absolutely. The the this from Peter the Great onwards, you had this great divide in Russia between Westernizers and Slavophiles, and you can see this very clearly in in in, in what's been going on. Uh, since Putin came, you've got one faction dragging Russia to the east and another faction trying to to bring it further in, into the west. And we've got it now in the Ukraine. This um, Where is the Ukraine to be? Is it going to be in the Russian eastern sphere of influence or in, on the western European sphere? Yes, it's very much alive. So where did, where did Leontiev ultimately end up or did he remain you know uh in that turbulent relationship until the end yes pretty much he 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 was always a, a lone voice really um he was wrongly um anathematized by the more liberal camp in russia as a reactionary which he wasn't in fact um on the other hand the slavophiles didn't like his attack on their Holy of Holies, which was the Slav bloodline. Um, so yes, uh, as, as, as often happens to independent thinkers, he fell between these two stools. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, he, he ploughed a lonely furrow, really, and died a lonely man. Um, was was it, would, would he have been considered sort of a dissident by e- e- either side or one of the sides? Well, you didn't really have the concept of dissident in those days. Um, I suppose he could have been seen as a dissident from from the Slavophile point of view. Yes, in his uh, in his disagreement with some of their most um, cherished theses. Uh, he, yeah, he was uh, he was an independent um, thinker, um, a very original thinker um and he, he, you know he he didn't he didn't suffer fools gladly and he wasn't afraid to um to tell people exactly what he thought and it didn't always win him many friends mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well his it seems uh from from the you know the biographical uh, overview that you give in the book that really his we could say his literary career, his writing career, begins with his relationship with the work of uh, Turgenev. And, you know, but this relationship quite quickly, it seems, becomes, he's not, he suddenly moves away from Turgenev and sort of almost distances himself from him. Yes, he, when when Leontiev first went to Moscow as a very young man, he, he met Turgenev and... Um, he, he admired him very much um, as a man and as a writer. Uh, I don't think Turgenev had that much influence on the development of Leontiev's writing. I think, uh, strangely enough, uh, Western writers, particularly Georges Song, for example, were a much greater influence. And of course, the Russian, the Russian, the famous Russian critic Vissarion Belinsky was also um, a, a big influence. Um, I think you were you're going to go on to talk about um, Leontiev's idea of art for art's sake. I might as well cover it mm-hmm. in this because it dovetails with it. Um, <clears throat> in the 1850s, there was a strong current of, of opinion in Russia that the duty of an artist was not to create beautiful works by art, but to expose the failings in Russian society um, at the time. And there was a, a, a very famous uh, journal called Sovremenik, which means the contemporary, um, edited by uh, people like uh, Chernyshevsky, um, which, which, which um, promoted this idea of art as, as a servant of um, ethical and social ideas. Leontiev wanted none of that. He believed very firmly that art had to be artistic first and foremost. Um, and he used um, Turgenev's book On the Eve as a kind of vehicle for, for 
uh, his own critique of the um, ideas being promoted by Sovramini. He he suggested that on the eve was a was an artistic failure because Turgenev had put too much emphasis on serving the social cause. Um, Turgenev, I think, never really forgave him for this, actually, and um, became very cool towards Leontiev after that. Uh, and indeed, uh, their relationship deteriorated quite quickly into acrimony on both sides. Uh, Turgenev suggesting that Leontiev should never have started writing at all, and uh, Leontiev suggesting that Turgenev himself had, had destroyed his art uh, through through um, <clears throat> sort of slavish subservience of the latest trends, um, so that that was the end of that really, um, as far as they were concerned. I think Turgenev's got a point. I think Leontiev's uh, fiction, his novels, are probably his weakest, the weakest aspect of his work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder where where Leontiev sort of stood in relation to how he understood um, objective and subjective values, right? Because he he seemed, you know, in this this idea of beauty for Leontiev is something to be taken extremely seriously, and it seems to be that it's undermined by that idea of art art for art's sake, right? Like beauty could just be something willy nilly. So is is that uh would that could that be basically considered for Leon T F the, the the foundational objective value of of uh perhaps meaning and purpose is is beauty? Well, up to a point. Um one of the strange things about Leon Tiev is that although he 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 was strongly critical of Sovereminic and Chernyshevsky and to in fact for subordinating art to ethical ideas, if you like. He himself was never shy of doing exactly that. And um, most of his own fiction, uh, they are novels of ideas, and he's not shy of of filling them with um, his own um, uh, moral um, outlook, if you like. Um, I think we're going to come to that in in a little while, actually. but uh, he certainly um, he certainly believed, though, that um, for uh, as a work of art needed to be first and foremost um, beautiful in some way, if it was to convey any meaning to anyone. Which is actually something that Belinsky himself had said, but people tended to forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for him, the the production of this, which, as I understand it, though, um, perhaps perhaps I'm wrong in this, is perhaps uh, quintessentially Russian, um, is is that for beauty uh, to be sort of produced or to be able to, to get in touch with it, there you have to have a almost like a positive relationship with with misery and with uh, evil uh, in a subtly sort of ascetic sense, right? That 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 these things aren't these things are almost fuel for beauty. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's quintessentially Russian. It's <laughs> quintessentially Leontiev, certainly. Um, I don't think he would. Leontiev sometimes seen as promoting evil, and I think that's not true. That's unfair. I think what he did say though was that if it was necessary in order to further the production of good and beauty, um, he would not seek to abolish it. Um, he famously said in his, in his book, A Place of One's Own, <clears throat> that if in order to, that we should have Cordelia, King Lear's daughter, the good daughter, um, if in order for her to um, appear, it was necessary we also had Lady Macbeth. He said, fine, let's have Lady Macbeth and we'll have Cordelia too. Um, the implication being, if you get, if you try to get rid of Lady Macbeth, you will also get rid of Cordelia. And um, 
So he was having a hit, really, at at the 19th century utilitarian uh, morality, um, the world-improving morality, which he felt um, could all all too easily turn out to actually destroy what was worth having in the world. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, the preservation of, of the beautiful and, by implication, the good, uh, was more important to um, Leontiev than promoting altruism. So he he he's a he's a difficult thinker for many people. Um, I mean, difficult in the sense of um, hard to come to terms with. Um, but he's very very stimulating and thought provoking. Mm. I mean, that's that's quite a. Um a should we say a, a christian position which is somewhat swept under the rug uh, you know in spite of sort of just putting the niceties at the forefront whereas well uh, let's say for instance that the the the, the evil which in the, in both the orthodox and, uh, and the catholic tradition would be understood as uh, you know it's allowed by god it's allowed uh, in divine providence as something that that god allows for the sake of the the growth of of men to become something more or to to go towards grace otherwise the whole thing is meaningless right if you don't have uh, if you don't have the choice between good and evil which we uh, which we took for ourselves in the garden of eden then um then then it's all for naught because you can't force faith so i think but i guess i guess with leontiev is that he's um uh, you know accentuating the the point that the evil has to be a thing, and that's something to be, uh, you know, fought with in a way. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just, I did scribble down an, an excerpt, a short one from from his book, A Place of One Own, One's Own. He's asked if his views would justify even violence, and his hero Milkeyev in the book says that you should justify it with beauty. He says that's the only reliable yardstick because it's an end in itself. Every struggle involves dangers, hardships, and pain, but man is higher than other creatures precisely because he finds pleasure in the struggle, in overcoming the hardships. So I think, yeah, he he wouldn't he wouldn't have wanted life reduced to a, a banality. Um, he he enjoyed the struggle. And and uh, and he thought it was it was the most product, productive thing in the long run. Which is there, there wasn't too much of this uh, in the book, but I got got the well, it's mentioned a few times, but I got the sense in relation to this struggle that him himself, uh, him he himself, sorry, uh, abided by a form of a, asceticism, and and we'll get later to he he has this sort of excursion, quite a short excursion really, to Mount Athos. Um, and he doesn't stay there too long, but it seems that he always retained throughout his life a, you know, a, a monastic form of form of personal living uh, in relation to this idea of struggle. He certainly did after. <clears throat> um, Leontius' life really does divide into two halves. Um, before his excursion to Athos in 1870, 71, uh, and afterwards, um he was Leontiev tried to live the aesthetic life when he was working for the Russian diplomatic service in in European Turkey and it's pretty clear that he didn't uh, put much restraint on himself uh, notably in a sexual sense um then he had this crisis um when he was a Russian consul in Salonika, he thought he was dying. And he was clearly terrified by this experience and prayed to the Virgin to save him and uh, and told her that if she did, he'd go to Mandathos and get ordained as a monk. Um, he did recover from the illness and he did go to Athos, but the, the, the elders at Athos probably right actually said that he wasn't ready to to take holy orders. Um, But he did, after that time, cleave to a a rigorously ascetic form of orthodoxy. I think it 
it was the one thing he 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 believed could actually uh, curb his tendency to excess and um, bring him ultimately to salvation, because he did become very very concerned for the fate of his soul. Mm -hmm. And this is this is really his 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 lifelong lifelong struggle all all bundled into one in a way of this idea of. Um, you know, as you said, beauty is a means to an end, uh, ascetic struggles, and the struggle of faith in relation to, you know, uh, the, the, the earlier part of his life with this sort of very overt sexuality and various other excesses, this struggle, which all seems to perhaps come under the, the title of, of faith in relation to these other things, of having a very sincere and um, quite uh, strenuous form of faith. In relation to all these things, yes, actually, I, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think sincerity is certainly one of his cardinal features. He, he, uh, there was a. I don't know if you've come across um, a chap called Vasily Rosanov, who was a, um, a, a later. He was younger, a younger contemporary. He became quite uh, well known as, as a thinker. Um, in the in the early twentieth century, he um, <clears throat> he noted that Leontiev, he said, almost almost uniquely among Russian literary figures, had no guile in him. He he was sincere, and in everything he did, you saw the man entire. He called him Adam without clothes, <laughs> and yes, I mean, all the way through he. Uh, first with his aesthetic outlook and, and cult of beauty, and later on with orthodoxy. Um, he was absolutely sincere in what he believed, and he did try to put it into practice, which, of course, caused him considerable grief over the years in one way and another. But, yes, he was, he was all, you always saw the real man. It was, uh, there was no, no guile, no disguise there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the question, you know, right at the end there, but as we sort of brought it in, I mean, was there much documentation of his time at, at Mount Mount Athos? Only from him. Hmm. Uh, he read uh, an account of it. Um, what I don't, I personally don't know whether any um, records of his time at Athos still exist on Athos. I doubt it personally. Um, it's possible. Um, but he was very honest in his account. I mean, he was quite upfront with the the um, fact that the elders didn't consider him spiritually ready to, to become a monk and told him to go back in the world. He eventually became a monk four years before his death, actually. Um, he died in um, the famous Russian uh, monastery of um, Sergei Posad, just outside uh, Moscow, after living in, in equally famous Optina Pustin for about four years before that. Mm -hmm. I think it was possibly the happiest time of his life, actually. What, the, la the last four years as a monk? Yeah. Yeah, he... Um, yeah, you just you, it just comes across in in his in his writing in his letters that he'd he'd, he'd achieved some kind of um, peace. Do you think? Do you think so? So one thing that came through is that he both he has this struggle of Christian faith, but he has a struggle of faith towards Christianity as well, as if he's almost. Uh, flirting with other with other things like he doesn't you know he doesn't want to accept them begrudgingly has to accept that there might be these other these other things do you think perhaps in those last four years he finally just became content and accepted the full truth of christianity it's difficult very difficult question um i doubt it i doubt if he completely threw overboard the baggage of Islam and Buddhism that he'd he picked up over the years. Um, yeah, and and how far was he actually a, um, a truly believing Orthodox Christian? It's a very difficult 
people to say, actually. I, again, Rosanov said that um, he wasn't. He said he, 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 he forced himself to believe in, in the Christian doctrine against every living impulse in him, Rosanov said. Um, I think there's some truth in that. He wanted to believe. He wanted to save his soul, um, but he had a lot of trouble doing it. Mm. Do you perhaps see that conversion story then, where where you know he said, you know, if 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 you save me, then I'll, you know, go to Mount Athos. Do you see that as perhaps? Hmm, I don't want to project it onto him, but perhaps he knew I'm probably going to survive here, and this will give me the the impetus to uh, and the reason to actually go do that. Uh, you know, as a sort of a major external help, he's sort of forcing him, forcing, uh, forcing God's hand in a way. No, I think he, I think he, he genuinely believed he was going to die, um, and in later life, his, 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 his orthodox faith was based upon the notion of the fear of God. The notion, rather Kierkegaardian, what a dread, the natural uh, reaction of man to God is his holy dread. And he said that this dread will in, in time breed love. And it's the only, uh, what should we say, the only, well, the best way anyway to, to um, attain to the love of God is through fear of him. It's why he fell out so badly with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in later life, because he saw their um, doctrine of love, um, what he called rose-tinted Christianity, hmm. as very, very, um, not very um, useful, actually. He, he predicted that... Uh, um, this kind of Christianity would, in the end, uh, lead either to revolution or to turning the church into something like you know, a, a vehicle for social work. He, he didn't really want anything to do with 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 their view of of faith as based upon what you might call altruistic love. Leontio's view was uh, you, you you fear first, you you tremble, and then you love. So it's a different view. Mm. Do you think he's been proven right? <laughs> well, uh, I don't I don't think any of us can say really until we face, uh, face our maker ourselves. Um, <laughs> I think it's a matter of personal choice, to be honest with you. Oh, I, I meant the, you know, he said about Tolstoy's form of love sort of you know, changing the church into something as a social, you know, social oh, yeah. task. I think he was right. I mean, Tolstoy <laughs> um, had a considerable, made a considerable contribution towards the eventual revolution in Russia um, through his scathing criticisms of the of the uh, state-controlled church. Um, actually. That's one area where Lontiev had some sympathy with him. He thought the state had too much control of the church, too. Um, Lenin um, was quite uh, prolific in his praise of Tolstoy later as one of the contributors and forerunners of the, of the revolution. So, yeah, I think there was something in it, all right. Um, but at the same time, I think Leontiev's extreme asceticism is difficult i think for uh for most people it's it's hard to emulate i think uh, you know you could be a bit kinder without turning the church into a into a vehicle for social work i think you can try and meet 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 perhaps meet dostoevsky halfway somewhere mm. when you when you say i mean asceticism itself is extreme anyway when you say extreme uh, in what in what practical sense did that you know show itself? Well, I think he's just asking too much of people um, <laughs> who really to 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 turn your back on on the world and reject the things of this life 
is hard. I think uh, saints can do it and martyrs can do it, but the average chap in the street can't do it. And I think it, I think faith needs to be a bit kinder to the weaknesses in human beings, kinder than Leontief was prepared to be. Although, having said that, um, not to create confusion, um, personally, and this is one of the ironies, is that almost everybody who knew Leontief uh, said what a nice and kind fellow he was, actually, in a personal sense. Um, which contrasts so hugely with these rather severe doctrines that um, well, it's always been a puzzler for people, really. Mm, I mean, that's something I was going to say, is that he seems to come across as someone quite cold in this sense, but perhaps not. Not at all. Mm. No, he was not a cold fellow. He, he had um, strong family relationships uh, he, his wife, he stood by his wife for many, many years, even though she became seriously mentally ill. Um, he had close friends and, um, as I say, his acquaintance, people who knew him, liked him. Um, he was not, he was not, a, he was not the kind of man you, you would, you would immediately get from just a perusal of his writings. He was a much a much warmer individual than you might think, actually. Do you think he? Do you think he was lonely? At times, yes, yes. As I say, his wife became seriously mentally ill. Um, he was cold-shouldered by a lot of the Slavophiles, who he saw as his natural allies. Um, he, yes, he did. He did feel isolated and lonely at times, particularly towards the end of his life, or at least in the period, as I say, up to the time when he became a monk. After that, I think he he was reconciled to life. He died quite young. I mean, he's only sixty-one, but after his experience um, before Athos, he was more or less chronically ill for the rest of his life. With, Various ailments, actually. So he was not a well man. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume he sort of saw those as a, a test or something to, you know, struggle with. I guess he did. He doesn't say a lot about them. Um, they were a test for him. Yes, they stopped him. They stopped him working uh, at times, which he found difficult. Um, but um, yeah, I suppose he did see them as 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 one of the uh, one of the things that we have to cope with. Yes. So thus far, I mean, people who hadn't come across him might might think of uh, Leontiev primarily as a as a you know, perhaps a novelist or a writer or a literary figure. Um, but as he sort of emphasized in the book as well i mean he he is a he is a philosopher of sorts so i mean in what sense can we consider leontiev a philosopher not really he's, <laughs> he's not a philosopher um in fact he was quite open about that he said uh he won't how do you put it he said he's not one of these people who can spin metaphysical uh, ideas out of themselves as a spider spins silk out of it to make its web. Um, he was a he was a he was a thing. He was a political thinker first and foremost. Um, and his great theme, almost say obsession, was uh, the development of culture from birth through flowering to decay. And what conditions would produce a flowering culture and what would hinder the production of it and what would cause its demise. So I think um, his chief, I mean, his chief contribution, shall we say, to, to, to Russian thought is precisely this uh, social, political, uh, evolutionary theory um which 
was very much in the um, in in the air anyway in the nineteenth century. I mean, it, social Darwinism, so to speak. It eventually um, culminated, and I think you mentioned this uh, in Oswald Spengler, mm-hmm. for example, the decline of the West. Uh, I was going to mention another chap actually called Pitirim Sorokin who's not so well-known um, as Spengler, but uh, was in fact quite an extraordinary figure. He he was a Russian. He um, he actually served uh, uh, as Kerensky's private secretary in the provisional government in 1917. He fled to America to escape death at the hand of the Bolsheviks and eventually set up the Harvard School of Sociology, uh, of all things, and then, in the late 1930s, he undertook the most extraordinary um, investigation of precisely the cultural uh, dynamics that Leontiev had, himself had been looking at oh, nearly 100 years before, or certainly 70 years before, um, using, as far as I can see, dozens of undergraduates and postgraduates to... to, to, to ferret out uh, almost every cultural icon from the time of the pharaohs. So, I mean, yeah, there was a a strong trend of this, um, this this trying to penetrate the causes of cultural birth, flowering and decay. And Leontiev was one of the very early early contributors to that. Mm. Um, Alongside a contemporary, uh, Nikolai Danilevsky, who's probably better known um, but had a, had a similar theory. They worked on similar lines. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably the most interesting aspect of, of the object. So, you know, not not as to sort of condense something which is probably a far more complex. But what for Leontiev specifically were the? Did he ever come to a conclusion as to what the the causes were for? You know, the birth, flowering, and then the decay of civilizations. Yes, he did. He had a, and this this to our to our modern eyes is 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 problematic. But he drew a parallel with with the natural world, uh, particularly plants, and he would say that um, uh, you get you get a seed, uh, say, say it's an acorn, and um, if this acorn falls into you know good soil it will eventually produce an oak tree um, and the oak will grow and it will flower and it will flourish for a while and then it will cease to flourish. And why will it cease to flourish? And this is where it becomes more problematic than ever. He says that the, 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 the constituent parts of the oak tree no longer wish to be an oak tree. They wish to, to take on their own individual uh, destinies, if you like, and not realizing that they will thereby destroy the tree which is giving them sustenance. The parallel he's actually drawing there is with the rise of economic and social liberalism in Western countries, which he really didn't like and didn't want to see come to Russia, because he thought that European societies which had reached their uh, their ultimate pitch of flowering in the Renaissance. Um, then along came the, the the Age of Enlightenment, and out of that flowed modern doctrines of liberalism, which he thought were causing the West to disintegrate and implode. And um, uh, it was the fate that he, he wanted to preserve Russia from. Of course, uh, hasn't quite worked out like that, but... Uh, that that was his view of, of things. He he thought Europe didn't have much of a future, actually. Mm. Well, I'll put my neck on the line and say that I think he's probably mostly right there. But he's he's got a point, yes. Mm. And of course, we're, we 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 sit in the middle of the process. Um, you know, we haven't got God's perspective on things. So yes, he was right about a lot of things. He made a lot of. Um, prophecies, particularly about things like Bolshevism, Stalin, 
Nazism. Uh, he didn't call them that, but um, there's a, a, a Russian writing after Perestroika. I can't remember his name now. He said that uh, one thing you have to think about with Leontiev, whether you love him or hate him, that most of what he said came right. Hmm. <laughs> those are the people you can't ignore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So, if I mean, was this sort of um, internal decay, you know, towards individualism? Was this, you know, determinist? Was this completely um, a foregone conclusion for Leontiev? Oh yes, he was very deterministic. Yes, he, in fact, um, so much so that uh, he he. He, uh, I already mentioned that he was ostracized by some by the Slavophiles. He later became ostracized by the conservatives in Russia because he said precisely that uh, reaction is, is, is pointless. Um, you can't stop this process, he said. Once it's started, once the process of decay has started, it will carry on. But, he said, you can slow it down. So his recommendations to the, the persons of power and influence in St. Petersburg were to implement as many measures as you could, which would slow the process of, of decay. It will not stop it, he said, and don't try to stop it because you'll just, you'll just make it go quicker. But you can channel it. And his great thing, actually... Uh, the channel he wanted to see it was was uh, was Byzantium and Byzantinism. He was desperate, in fact, that Russia should uh, conquer and annex the city of Constantinople, which was the uh, obviously the uh, the home of the Byzantine Empire, the cradle of Eastern Orthodoxy, and he felt that if Russia could. Uh, annex Constantinople and shift its capital there from St. Petersburg, uh, that that might trigger a flowering of culture which might show that Russia was still on the up curve rather than on the way down. Um, of course, the Tsar and the ministers wanted nothing of that. Um, it never came to fruition, but um, that was his dream. It became pretty much an obsession with it, actually. Mm. I mean, that's what that's. What I was going to ask, sort of, what what uh, you know, if you if you to bundle everything together of Leontiev with this sort of um, Christian optimistic pessimism, uh, you know, it's decaying, but we can find ways to slow the decay, right? Uh, you know what. Perhaps, perhaps a better question there would be within that: what for Leontiev is the would should be. The, the the purpose of the individual man. What? Or did he never, you know, seek to sort of define that? No, he does. If you go go back to the novel, A Place of One's Own, which was six years before his conversion on Athos, um, he goes into some detail about that. Um, his view, I guess, of the purpose of the individual is to contribute as much as he or she can to um, the cultural uh, flowering of the society in which they live. Um, and this, this, of course, is where, this is where Nietzsche comes in, really. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, Leontief was not a philosopher. And the whole the whole read across to Nietzsche actually boils down to this one passage in this one book actually, where the hero is is um, uh, an extreme individualist. Um, I tell you what, he reminds you. You know, you know. I don't know if you know Ayn Rand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, Atlas Shrugged, and the chap's name escapes me. John John Galt. Yeah. That's it. Um, Milkeev in A Place of One's Own is very much a cult figure, actually. And he, he says at one point that 
life and death don't matter as long as you do what you have to do and contribute your bit and live then you will you'll have you'll have achieved everything that someone can achieve and he goes on to talk about the developed and underdeveloped man um, and there's a character in the book who's obviously the personifies uh, the underdeveloped man as well um, and of course a lot of this really does seem to look forward to Nietzsche and also Zarathustra and the the Ubermensch the 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 super well the upper man um, but to be honest I think that's as far as it goes really um, uh, but it, um, of course, it, it's it's such a striking thing that it's been picked up on by all commentators on Yontif ever since uh, all the Rosanov in the in the eighteen nineties, I think, was the first to notice this. Uh, you can't ignore it, um, and it's interesting that Yontif should be writing these things twenty years before Nietzsche, and. Uh, as far as I can ascertain, I'm almost certain that neither man knew the other or anything of them. Um, so it's, it's quite a, I call it convergent evolution in the book. Two people faced with the same dilemma of the same circumstances produce the same result. Mm-hmm. But that's as far as it goes, I think. So do you, th- do you think that sort of allusion to Nietzsche is just a way to... Uh... You know, find a figure and say, "Well, you don't know much about this person, but they're like this person that you do know." You know, whereas really, perhaps it's a bit almost damaging to do that, and the the two should be, you know, left um, with in their own context. Well, I think that's easy to fall into that. I uh, I think some people have uh, in the past uh, written books, you know, the of a Russian Nietzsche, which is really building on a a very narrow foundation. Um, no, I think it's it's um as I say it 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 it's so striking this this particular parallel that the, you you can't ignore it and uh, it's just very interesting. Um, I as a bit of um, in a way as a bit of fun I mentioned in the book that. Um, it, it, it's also very redolent of the film The Third Man and this notorious cuckoo clock analogy that Harry Lyme propounds. Um, that, you know, the, 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 the Borgias and the Renaissance were, were horrible people, but they produced this wonderful outpouring of art, whereas the Swiss are very nice people and they produced the cuckoo clock. And funnily enough, Milkeyev says something very, very similar in in the book, um, he even he even mentions the Renaissance and he even mentions Switzerland. It's quite uh, intriguing because nobody really knows where this cuckoo clock analogy came from in the Third Man. Harry, um, what's his name, Orson Welles, said he thought it came from an old Hungarian play, but wasn't more specific than that. Um, whether it came from Leontiev, who knows? We'll never know. But it's a very, very similar, very similar extract. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on the, on that note, you know, face to face with with someone such as Nietzsche, who's obviously been remembered, why uh, why is Leontiev, if you agree, been forgotten? Well, I think there's probably several reasons for that. Uh, I mean, first of all, Nietzsche created a huge. Um, uh, a much larger uh, oeuvre of um, very, very um, provocative works. Uh, also, of course, Nietzsche was writing in the West. He was writing in German. Um, he was, although a strange outgrowth in his, his own way, I suppose, he was he was in the mainstream of uh, European philosophical thought running running through Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche. Uh, Leontiev was writing in Russia um, in a different language, in a different alphabet, in a different 
society. Um, and then came the revolution, of course, and he was completely uh, a non-person under the Soviet regime. Um, yeah, and, and of course, that hitherto, not many of his works have been translated into Western European languages. Um, although I was pleased to say that the same year as my book came out, last year, in fact, um, the, a new translation of his main uh, socio-political treatise, uh, Byzantinism and Slavdom, uh, was, was published in English, which is a very useful development, actually. Mm. It may, may, may allow more people to get closer to him. Is that where you'd sort of advise people to begin? I mean, there's, I guess there's not too many places for the the Westerner to uh, to begin unless they speak Russian. Well, your own book, of course. They should begin with my book, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, my book's a good place. Um, there are some other um, studies in English, which I mention in the bibliography to my book. Nicholas Berdyaev is one who wrote a very interesting study of Leontiev back in the 1920s. Um, otherwise, this, um, this new translation by a chap called, he signs himself K, Benoit, B-E-N-O-I-S. I don't know anything about him apart from that. I couldn't find anything out about him. But he's made this translation, and that, that would be a, a very useful thing for people to read. I think it would give you a lot of of his uh, of Leontiev in there. Yeah, and mm -hmm. well, there are one or two things floating around in English, but not a great deal. Okay, okay. Um, is there is there anything you'd like to add about Leontiev or or your book that uh, you feel we haven't we haven't touched upon? Obviously, it goes yeah. without saying that there's much more within uh, within your book. <laughs> yeah, it's a jolly good read. <laughs> no, I think. Um, We've, we've we've covered quite a lot of ground. I think he he is a very interesting man. He he had he had an interesting life, and he wrote a lot of very provocative and um, provocative provocative articles, which I think shed light not just on what was going on in his day, actually, but also what's what's going on in ours as well, because the. Obviously, he's anyone who wants to get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin, <laughs> for example, Leontiev isn't a bad place to start because all the things that have gone to make up um, the modern Russian mindset really are there in Leontiev. The Slavophile Europeanizer debate we, we, we touched on earlier, the, the orthodox mentality, the even the um, the tendency, which has always been in Russia, towards authoritarianism and autocracy, which is clearly there in, in, in Putin. Um, all these things are there in Leontiev too. Um, and also, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of debate in Leontiev between uh, the, the relative merits of liberalism and conservatism. Um, which really are, are pretty alive today in the West when you think of the, the likes of, uh, you know, Trump and uh, the anti-Trump um, camp. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy and I, he would repay reading for anyone who, who wants to, to get into these things. So if you want, a, if you want a, maybe a subtle vision of the future, Dive in, dive into some Leontiev. There might be a few more predictions that have yet to come true. Um, yeah, well, he made he made plenty of predictions about um, Stalin. Uh, didn't mention him by name, but uh, you can see see he talks about the new Constantine the Great, who will seize the banner of socialism in the way Constantine seized the banner of Christianity, and lead Russia to a new a new renaissance. He feared the forthcoming conflict with Germany. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's plenty in there. There's plenty in there to ponder. Um, but I think you're right. I think he's he is he is a way into the Russian mind 
And for anybody who wants to study the Russian mind and is interesting, you know, in Putin and what's going on out there, he's he's as good as anyone actually for that, mm. and better than most, right? <laughs> okay. Well, um, obviously, this was your your PhD from a long, long time ago. I mean, are you, uh, you know, since this publication, are you, um, should we say, motivated to write some more, or are you working on anything else, or is this? Towards the end of his life, Leontiev came into personal contact with a chap called Lev Tikhomirov. Mm-hmm. He's another interesting guy. He was a terrorist in his youth. He was part of the People's Will group who assassinated Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Tikhomirov fled abroad and then petitioned the new Tsar to be let back into Russia, and they agreed. And he came back and became a staunch monarchist and a defender of autocracy and orthodoxy. And I'm looking at him. I think there's a book there waiting to be written. And, uh, uh, well, it's early days, but we'll see what comes of it. That sounds extremely interesting. I uh, Yeah, I'd definitely love to read it. That seems like a good place to finish up. So, Glenn Cronin, thanks very much. Um, it's been great. And uh, also, I'll be sure to put the links for... Um, where to find your book in the description. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure.